But really, it, once we just had one or two placements that did well, then that's all it took. Because again, back to the point about networking, all these business owners know each other, talk to each other. And once we had a few do well, then they're talking to each other saying, hey, you know, Coalfield grads are, are really pretty good. Welcome to Appalachian Startup, stories of new ideas that eventually became thriving businesses in areas that most would consider a bad investment. I'm J.D. Belcher, and I started this podcast because I took the same path as a lot of these folks. I'm a former coal miner, and now I make films through my own production company called JJN Multimedia. I wanted to hear others speak of their journey to not only give new beginners hope, but to help me grow as a fellow entrepreneur. Coalfield Development is an organization that has carved a path in the social enterprise world by rebuilding the Appalachian economy from the ground up. Brandon Dennison is the CEO, and despite thoughts of leaving the coalfields during his childhood, he later became dedicated to changing the narrative. His constant effort throughout the years to build the organization has taken it from tearing down and redeveloping buildings with a handful of people to now employing, training, and eventually placing hundreds of Appalachians throughout the journey. Enjoy. I grew up in uh, the Huntington area. Um, was born at Cabell Huntington Hospital and then spent most of my childhood in a town called Ona, West Virginia, O-N-A. And uh, Ona is just a small speck on the map. It's famous for its uh, asphalt racetrack. Mm-hmm. It's kind of its claim to fame. And uh, I went to uh, Cabell Midland High School. And um, and that's me. On, uh, on my dad's side, we... Uh, it's... I, it's like seven generations. It might even be up to eight now uh, in West Virginia. So uh, the family cemetery is in Braxton County. Oh, very cool. So in high school, kind of what was your plan for post high school? Just to go to college and did you have some kind of certain goal in mind? I always assumed I would leave West Virginia actually when I was younger. Um, I'm trying to remember back to high school. I uh, I didn't have much of a plan. I, I, I definitely was going to go to, so it was, we were an education family. Right. <clears throat> my dad taught journalism at Marshall University. My mom taught English at um, Mount West Community Technical College. So it was always just assumed in our family, like you go to college, you know, no, no ifs, ands, and buts. But after that, I mean, I wanted to go to college. I wanted to go out of state initially. And then I just wanted to have an interesting, I wanted to travel a lot was was probably would have been my main goal when you asked me in high school. So in uh, where did you go to college? Shepherd. Shepherd. Yeah. Shepherd University. Um, so in college, did, is that when you kind of thought, you know, maybe I want to figure this social enterprise thing out, which we're going to get into social enterprises and what they are. But uh, when was the first thought of Coalfield development? The seeds of it were definitely planted in college. I I did not know the term social enterprise when I was an undergraduate. So that would have been between 2004 and 2008. Never heard the word before. But I was really involved with a Presbyterian church, and it was just a very active, compassionate congregation uh, and really had a deep commitment to, to social justice. So we would... Tra- I, I helped run the youth group, so we would travel to we went to Native American reservations and inner city settings, and met migrant workers on apple orchards, and just coming to understand the injustices that we have in our country. And uh, and then I was a history major, and so I was learning about 
the history of of West Virginia and kind of understanding some of the politics and economics of why things are the way they are. And I actually, I had a, an urban, uh, a class on urban politics. And in that class, I learned what a, a community development corporation was, the CDC. And what I really liked about that model, even though it's mainly an urban model, but it serves the whole person. So rather than just saying, you know, we're a health organization, we do health or we're an education organization and we do education. A CDC is all those things wrapped into one place so that you can meet a person where they are and deal with whatever the most pressing issues are. And so I kind of started thinking by the time I was wrapping up college that a CDC model is something that might make sense back home in, in, in Southern West Virginia. So was there a certain organization that you were kind of inspired by or modeling off of, or any certain kind of mentor that was important in that phase, or was it kind of just trial by error? Coalfield development would become a lot of trial by, <laughs> by error, honestly. And again, most CDC models are more urban than rural. Um, my mentor was the pastor at the Presbyterian church, uh, Randy Trimba, who really, took me under his wing, really believed in me and saw potential in me. And so what he mentored me in was not so much, not so much social enterprise, but just how to treat people and how to build a team and how to be a good listener and, um, and just a loving, compassionate individual. Right. How did you come up with the name? Like Coalfield Development? Yeah. I did not pick the name Coalfield Development. So uh, Coalfield Development was created as a legal entity um, by the Housing Authority of Wayne County, West Virginia. And they set it up really just to be like a nonprofit arm of the Housing Authority. And in 2010, I got, and it didn't have any money or any budget. Um, and then in 2010, I had an affordable housing internship and I was placed with the Housing Authority of Wayne County. This was in between my first and second year of graduate school. And, um, my job was to develop the business plan for this new nonprofit arm of the housing authority. And the, I spent that whole summer just really listening and, and learning uh, kind of in the hills and hollers, kind of really getting out in the rural places. And I realized that just developing affordable housing was not the main thing that people wanted, that something more creative and holistic was needed. Um, and it just happened to have the initial CDC. But so actually I never picked the name. I think where the name came from was just, um, it was, it was meant to serve the Southern part of Wayne County, which is really where the coal fields start. And there's a, there was this sense in Wayne County, like Northern Wayne County's right outside Huntington. So a lot of the resources and money and opportunity in Wayne County are go to the Northern part. So this nonprofit was supposed to be focused on the Southern part where the coal fields start. Right. If you was to break down what Coalfield Development is in a couple paragraphs to let someone know, like, what is it that Coalfield does? We incubate and grow social enterprises, and the enterprises are designed to diversify the Appalachian economy. So we're trying to show what an economy can be besides just coal for Southern West Virginia. Then we use those enterprises to employ unemployed people. So they're real businesses that create real jobs. But the job, the way we structure the jobs, it's more than just a source of employment. It's really a personal and academic development growth opportunity. And then um, we do community-based real estate projects. So we take old empty buildings or former strip mines and we reimagine what those places can be and we convert liabilities into community assets. 
And social enterprise is just for someone who may not know. Yep. Social enterprise is a blending of the efficiency and the money making of the of the private sector world with the compassion of the nonprofit world. It really blends those two things together. So you have a business plan, you do make money, but it's for a social and environmental good. So what was the first thing you do to start the structure? Like you just sat down and wrote a bunch of stuff on, uh, you know, I know mission statement was a big deal in the beginning. Like it didn't mm -hmm. take you a couple of days or mm -hmm. you and somebody else. Yeah. So, so I went to undergraduate and shepherd really involved with the Presbyterian church, learned what a CDC was, decided to go to graduate school to really hone my understanding of, of how a CDC could get set up in the whole nonprofit world. And while I was in graduate school, that's where I heard the term social enterprise. The business school was starting a new certificate program in it. And, and the more I learned, the more I felt like here's something that's really different and could really make a difference uh, back home. So when I was younger, I always thought I would leave. But then when I was away, then I wanted to get back. Um, so it started, the, so in between my first and second year of graduate school, I had that internship and so it really just started with listening and trying not to open my mouth too much and just listening as close to the ground grassroots level as possible and trying to understand what was needed. And then I took the whole second year of graduate school and worked on the business plan for Coalfield Development. Um, and, and, but what's beautiful about the plan is as our team has grown and new people have come and gone, you know, it, it's been, it's lived and breathed. And so it's, it's been updated and refined and changed to stay relevant. Right. And you think evolving as you go is, is part of, you know, uh, I mean, this was your first project coming out of college. So is it kind of a learning process as all businesses are, you know, cause a lot of people think, oh, well, it's nonprofit world, you know, they can, you know, file for grants and then continue and do whatever, but it's a lot more complicated than, than people realize. So is Absolutely. It, so yeah. Talk well, about that evolution. Yeah. Well, we always, the, the beauty of a social enterprise model is you don't have to depend on those grants. Mm -hmm. the, the grants, they come and go and they're very competitive. <laughs> so you, you know, you, you, it's not as easy as just put in a, say, Hey, I want grant money and you get it. It just doesn't work like that. I think what we've learned, what we've really had to learn is like on the human side, the challenges that, we need to help people overcome in our state are even greater than I realized. Even though I grew up here, you know, I think in many ways our challenges have only gotten deeper since my childhood. Uh, and so we really had to learn how to structure a work week in a way that acknowledges all those challenges and still gets work done. And then I think on the business level, like this is a very hard state to do business in. Uh, things like shipping costs are higher here because you got to get your products out of the hills and hollers where you're making them to market. And that can be expensive. Um, technology barriers, you know, a lot of commerce is online based and that can be difficult in a place that doesn't have a lot of online access. Um, and so we, we've had to be very nimble and adaptive. And you're speaking on, on scheduling of the 33, six and three model. Is that something you created kind of based on that idea? Yep. So when we, the initial business plan had not gotten specific enough to be 33, six and three yet. We just knew that we, we wanted to start with the construction enterprise. My uh, best friend from high school joined me, uh, Chase Thomas. He got our, he got our, um, contractor's license. In fact, that the way that started was 
at the end of that summer internship, he and I were just having dinner together and I was just telling him this, these new ideas that I, that I had. And he said, Hey, I, you know, I want to be a part of that and was willing to leave his job to do it. So we started in construction and we wanted to enroll all of our crew members in community college. So that the, the academic piece was always there, but then when we realized how deep the personal problems were, we added in the three for personal development. Mm-hmm. So it's, Go ahead and tell what the 33, 6, and 3 stands yep, for. So that's how we organize the work week. Mm-hmm. 33 hours of paid work, just like any other job. That's that's the main hook. But six hours a week, our crew members are enrolled in community college. They're working towards an associate's degree. And three hours a week of personal development. So we have these journals uh, that we work on every day, a lot of reflection and evaluation and accountability. You know, setting life goals and then having a support system to actually make tangible progress towards those goals. In the early days is, you know, you got your contractor license. Okay. Is it as easy as well? I'm a, I'm a licensed contractor now. I know how to do all this stuff. Or did you have, is there a certain story that comes to mind of one of y'all's early projects where things didn't go quite as planned? Like every pro, like, like it was a struggle to survive because it's hard enough to be a new business in West Virginia and then here we are intentionally hiring people who are not yet experienced in the field. And so um, we had this deconstruction idea. So all these empty buildings, so we're going to tear them down. We're going to resell, reuse, recycle the material. Right. So instead of just put it on a landfill, uh, it generates a little bit of revenue. It's more sustainable. So our first big deconstruction project was this old turn-of-the-century Victorian home beautiful, you know, virgin hardwoods in it. Uh, the wood was the main asset that we were going to resell. We had a contractor out of Brooklyn who was going to use the wood in high-end bar and restaurant renovations. And we still do business with him today, actually. Um, and the older, the more beat up, the more distressed the wood, the, the, the better the price for him. I mean, that's the whole look he's going for. So we're getting towards the end of the project and it's kind of stretching on and we're getting tired We've stacked up all our wood for him to come pick up. And we've got like one room of the house left. And this project was a little bit out of, it was about two hours away. And it was a Friday and it was time to wrap it up. Right. So we had the brilliant idea for the last room of the house that we just burn it down. We already got, we already gotten all the wood we needed. Right. You know, so it, it amazed us how fast. So this is like a four, four walls and no roof. And so essentially that just created this tinderbox vortex <laughs> and the thing just like went up in flames way faster, way bigger than we realized. And the room, the two story part of the building that was left, it got out of hand and collapsed straight onto the wood that we had piled oh, up. Wow. You know, like the whole point of the project was to save this wood. Right. And we were like losing all of it. It was just like a complete disaster. Oh. Um, and a crew chief had already, or a, uh, yeah, a crew member had already like cut his arm and gone to the ER and it just turned into like one thing after the right. other. Did you have 911 on standby? Like, I don't know, man. I think we kind of need to call it. <laughs> yeah, this might be getting bad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is, this is getting intense. Well, um, so about networking, like obviously Coalfield has gotten national attention and you all have built a, a strong networking base. How important is networking to building a business in Appalachia where you may not have as many resources as elsewhere? Yeah, I, I think it's hugely important. I think ultimately, even in an urban setting, like business is ultimately about relationships. 
more or less. And I think in Appala in Appalachia, that's like double true because like we all know each other, <laughs> right. you know. So like your word is is everything. Um, and and then I think finding win wins is kind of what it's all about, you know. So not so much looking at business as a zero sum, you know, dominate the market type kind of thing, but really saying here in central Appalachia, we're small enough place that we've all kind of got to be in this together, <laughs> you know, rather than tearing each other down. I think we, we need to be finding win-wins so we can grow our whole pie rather than fight over little slices of it. Exactly. So the, the academic aspect, you kind of have built a network over time of employers that look to hire your crew members who graduate. So how long did that take before that started to happen? That took a little while. Um, you know, employers, a lot of times are really skeptical of like workforce development programs. I think they, they like the noble intentions, but they feel like they've got a bottom line to worry about and they don't have time, you know, to deal with all the other life stuff. So I think it took us some time to build our credibility that the training that we were doing, the, the crew members that we were graduating, you know, really were game ready. But really, it, once we just had one or two placements that did well, then that's all it took. Because again, back to the point about networking, all these business owners know each other, talk to each other. And once we had a few do well, then they're talking to each other saying, hey, you know, Coalfield grads are, are really pretty good. You ought to give them a look. So it's, it's, it's preparing them for the team of the workforce, kind of. They know once they graduate, they had to go through certain, certain requirements and standards that, you know, they're ready. They can be put to work. Exactly. Uh, talk. Uh, what are some of the initiatives you all have going on that people may not know about? Like, you know, one thing I love about it is Appalachia is so much more than what we, uh, you know, what a lot of outsiders think it is. And there's so many elements to it that are amazing, uh, whether it's the food or uh, the the arts and culture or whatever. Um, what are, you know, break down your social enterprises and kind of what y'all do now from, you know, deconstruction to where we are today. Yeah, I think uh, one thing that kind of flies under the radar is our community-based real estate. So in Appalachia, we have a lot of really beautiful, interesting architecture, uh, a lot of historic buildings, a lot of it tied to back when the, in the coal days when the coal boom was on and companies needed, you know, businesses and these down business storefronts and these downtowns were really vibrant little places. And so at Coalfield, we... Uh, really tap into the community love of those places. A lot of people have memories in these old buildings. Um, the buildings have so much more character and soul than what, you know, a modern kind of stick build that gets thrown up in a suburb could ever have. And so uh, we revitalize these buildings, bring them back to life, but we do it in a way that preserves the unique architecture uh, in the buildings. So that kind of, that's a piece of Coalfield that not everybody knows about. Um, we have our, sustain you social enterprise you know we have a license with major league baseball and we make shirts out of 100 percent recycled material um, we make furniture out of reclaimed wood um, that connects to the deconstruction that i was talking about earlier with saw's edge um, refresh appalachia um, produces sustainable ag products it's part of a statewide co-op called turn row um, you know we even we have a coffee shop have an antique shop, you know, it, it's purposefully broad because we're trying to say, 
okay, our economy has been really dependent on one thing and that's made us vulnerable. So now we need to pioneer and show what can a diversified economy look like where lots of different entrepreneurs have lots of different ideas that they put into action in many interesting ways. Mm -hmm. And each one of those social enterprises, like when a new crew member joins, how do you decide where they're going to go? Is it their interests or, or is it flexible? As it is flexible. It's kind of a matching process. And it, it, you know, it does depend like when we recruit, if someone like did the, their high school vocational carpentry program, well, they probably make sense and revitalize to be to our contracting arm. Um, you know, whereas uh, sometimes people, they come, they don't have a skill background, but you can tell they're really excited about it, about a certain enterprise. And so we'll start there, but it can change. Sometimes a crew member will start with one enterprise for whatever reason, it won't work very well. So they can switch and try a different one. Awesome. And, uh, just to clarify, it takes two years before they're officially. It takes about, uh, two, two and, three, a half. Two and, and a half. You know, initially we, we made the contract two years and then we realized that really wasn't long enough. Uh, a lot of our crew members need some remedial classes that they have to make up. Uh, and so it, even though it's technically a two-year degree, usually takes two and a half to three. And that's the life skills, the three hours you mentioned of like, or, or you're six. talking about, okay, you're talking, talking about academics. Yep, yep. yep. So the life skills, what's involved with that? Why did you see the need to add that, which I think is extremely important? It is very important. And that really came out of the realization that uh, you know, in Southern West Virginia, we're dealing with generational poverty. Let's just be, you know, blunt about that. And um, you can't just work around the edges of that. You got to get right at the roots of it. Uh, and it's multifaceted. So we said, look, we're going to set aside three hours every single week to really, to really work at this stuff all together, not just our crew members, but really all of us to create a culture of learning and growing uh, and, and striving towards our full potential. And the philosophy is that you can't really tell a person how to develop life skills or how to achieve their full potential. That has to be an internal thing that we all figure out for ourselves. But the thinking is you can create a space where that's possible to happen on the inside and you can support that process and encourage people through that process. Mm -hmm. And what kind of activities those three hours a week do you do to, to mm -hmm. accomplish that? So we have 12 personal development themes and 12 professional development themes. And we have a West Virginian from throughout history who embodies each of those themes. So for the first week of the month, we start with the personal and we learn about, we have these journals. We learn about the West Virginian who embodies the theme. For example, um, regulation of emotion is one kind of figure out how to control our emotions. So Chuck Yeager's the West Virginian first man to break the sound barrier, obviously had to in high intense, dangerous situations and had to keep his cool. You know, so he really embodies the theme. Then we have journal prompts, you know, essentially to understand. So for, for regulation of emotion, you know, over the course of your life, when have you struggled with this? You know, what might trigger, um, bad emotions, what might trigger good emotions, and then learning some exercises to overcome that. The second week, we do the pers uh, the professional theme. Also have West Virginian for that, journal prompts for that. Then the third week, um, we get out of the notebooks and we have a shared experience to really drive home drive home the theme. So one month, uh, the theme was focus, and we, so we took people uh, skeet shooting. 
Uh, one month it was long range view decision making. We did a chess tournament, you know, trying to think several moves ahead. Right. And then the last week of the month is crew member council. So all the crew members come together. Uh, we have a Coalfield community leader who embodies those themes, who we present an award to, and they speak and spend some time with the crew. And then that's an opportunity for the crews to um, raise concerns, to you know, and and really just to come together and celebrate successes, show and tell. Right, and that's where we're at today. And it's it's, you know, what's it like to you? You know, you started this with Chase. And then now you get to see this room full of people come together uh, under the same mission. You know, what is that feeling for you every month? Crew member council is definitely my favorite day of the month. Uh, I think to see all the different, the show and tell is incredible, you know, to see all the different good work that's happening across Southern West Virginia because of Coalfield development to think that that grew out of a, idea that I just kind of spouted off about at dinner in the summer of 2010 with a high school buddy. Um, it's, uh, it's very, very rewarding. And it crew member council day, you know, you see a construction crew almost has a new house built. It's the first new house built in that neighborhood in literally decades and refresh Appalachia selling peas in Williamson you know, a farmer's market that didn't even exist several years ago, has never had peas as a product. You know, now it does. Uh, we incubated Southern West Virginia's first solar company. Never was, a, never, never was one before. Uh, and so we have this lofty vision statement, but then you realize at Crew Member Council, in all these different ways, like the vision's actually becoming reality. Mm. Is there any, you know, you've been doing this long enough to see people from when they come in and when they leave. Uh, you know, how does that affect you? Like, I don't know if there's a certain individual that has entered through the program and then you see them leave and they're a completely different person, or I don't know if they've maybe expressed their gratitude, we'll call it to you. Uh, you know, is there anything that comes to mind? Well, I've got a whole drawer of my desk stuffed full of notes, you know, saying, uh, you know, how much better people's lives are, how they, they're the first in their family, not just to graduate college, but to even try. Um, so, I mean, we're, there's literally hundreds of life-changing stories now, you know, that I carry around with me. Um, so to, to pick one... You don't have to mention names if you... Sure. Um, I mean, we have one who he literally, he was homeless. You know, he was couch surfing and had, you know, two daughters and, uh, and then became the first college graduate in his family. And like, he's now a homeowner, you know, and then is fully gainfully employed. I mean, it's just a total transformation. Um, so, uh, that pops to mind. Um, you know, another, you know, one of our first refresh graduates uh, pops to mind and uh, she works like she runs a farmer's market now. Mm -hmm. So not only becoming a graduate, but really becoming a leader in the whole new emerging field of sustainable agriculture. Right. You know, pretty incredible. This the I mentioned we started a solar company and now like that company got acquired by a bigger solar company and our crew members got to have an ownership stake. So we have four graduates of our solar program that now have an ownership stake 
in West Virginia's biggest solar company. Right. Um, it's, wow. It's amazing. So it was Rewire Appalachia you're talking about was acquired by Solar Holler. Yep, right? exactly. Very cool. But you know what, even, so the success stories are fantastic and encouraging, but also like some of the not 100% success stories pop to mind too. So, um, you know, some crew members, they just don't make it the whole two and a half years. And, you know, they might quit. They just get overwhelmed. They have stuff going on a lot, sometimes addiction issues. And even there, you know, Coalfield was, is part of a, a bigger life trajectory. And I've had these folks that come back into the office like two or three years later, and they'll say, you know, I didn't make it through, but Coalfield is really the first place that believed in me. And even though it didn't work out right away, it did plant a seed of self-confidence that maybe I maybe I could do something different with my life, you know. And so the numbers are great, and the the grant reports always want you to have the numbers, but really there's this human process of figuring ourselves out that Coalfield gets to be a part of in a really special way for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. So it kind of changes the traje- trajectory, even the experience of just everyone being together with the same mission, kind exactly. of sets and forth, and being a part of something bigger than yourself, exactly. So that being said, like what tangibly does a, a, a crew member who successfully completes the program, what do they leave with when they're done? They all have at least four professional certifications. They have an, so they've earned an associate's degree, a college degree in applied science from a community technical college. They have a savings account. We work with all of our crew members to establish a savings account. Some come unbanked. They don't even have a checking account. And, right we get to a savings account and, uh, and a sense of, uh, they have a life plan. So every crew member we work with to establish a, what do you want out of life and how do we get there? Right. And they have a job, you know I mean? We, every graduate we've had, uh, has found full-time employment. You know, we've worked with our network of employers to make sure that they're taken care of at or above the wage that they leave us with. Right. That's amazing. So a hundred, like since you began, a hundred percent job placement of of those who finish the whole program, earn their degree, hundred percent get a get a job at or above their wage they left us with. Fantastic. Do you hire crew members? Sometimes, yeah. Sometimes their placement is here. Mm-hmm. So um, something we've added on are just staff hires. So each enterprise, it's really all about the crew members but we will hire a couple just staff to be 40 hours a week, folks who have experience in that field and can just help the business be profitable. And sometimes a crew member can graduate and become staff. Uh, you know, in some of the communities where we work, there aren't a lot of jobs to be had. And so we, our businesses need to you know, are our key job creator. Mm-hmm. And just because of the, like, explain what is your position on coal for someone who may not know, like, uh, explain your position on that and kind of how we, you know, you hold a appreciation for the culture, obviously. America owes coal country a lot. And if you understand the history of this country, our industrial revolution, what powered our winning two world wars, a ton of it circles back to that fossil fuel of coal. <laughs> uh, so 
you know, in Appalachia, like we only ever mined coal because there was demand for it. We were just supplying that demand all up and down the East Coast and um, and in more modern times heading out West. So our, our country would not be where it is today without coal. And so we have to honor that. And And yet there's this reality that while we should be proud for of powering the country, powered the country in West Virginia, we became our whole economy really became dependent on that one thing. And that made us really, really vulnerable. You know, we put all our eggs in one basket and, and, and we see where we are. And so, although we should be grateful to our miners and honor what they've contributed to the country, we also, it's critical that we, shape a new future that's more sustainable, financially sustainable, socially sustainable, environmentally sustainable for our kids and our grandkids. Mm -hmm. And for me personally, like it's frustrating seeing people blame the coal miner when really they're, you know, it's the lack of a transition that we've fell short in in the past few decades. I think a lot decades. of people subconsciously, yeah, they like blame Appalachia for climate change. They like assume that somehow we're more responsible for climate change than anybody else, but really we're no more responsible for climate change than people who flip their lights on in big cities. Just feeling the demand. Exactly. Yep. Uh, and also too, you, uh, you all have brought on laid off coal miners, right? Yeah, to go through absolutely. the program. Yep. Uh, so on that, what's the requirements to apply to coal field? Like what gets you accepted? So our job interviews are, are not like a normal job interview because we exist to create opportunity for people who are kind of boxed out from opportunity. So really what we are recruiting for is people who are ready to make the most of the opportunity. So, you know, we'll purposely hire someone who doesn't have the skill sets in the field because this is where they can learn them. Um, but we want to feel out like the, the crew member does need to be committed to the school part. And the crew member does need to be willing to take three hours a week to work on personal development and life skills. And, and so, you know, sometimes we'll feel like if a crew member is not quite ready for that, it's not a no, it's just a not right now. And then in six months, five months, they may be in a place where they, where they are ready for it. We recruit in three main places, um, uh, local DHHR offices, which are the non-PC term would be welfare offices, uh, unemployment offices, and vocational programs. Right. And as you go along, you know, starting from you and Chase to now, like I imagine there's a lot of HR issues that came up. So kind of what is your structure now as far as do you have someone who just deals with HR? How does that work? Well, we, a couple of years ago, we, the, the personal development is so important to us that we did, we decided to hire one full-time position just to focus on personal development, which ends up including a lot of HR stuff like discipline, you know, kind of on ramps and off ramps when you have issues. Um, that, that was Ryan Stoner initially. He's now our chief operations officer and uh, Kelly Crabtree is now our director of personal and academic development. So she really gives us laser focus on that six and the three and making sure it goes well. How did you know along the way that you needed a position to fill, you know, variable Z, whatever? How did you know when to, when to build it up? It, it was really like identifying primary um, roadblocks or pain points, you know? So like with personal development, 
the where we were losing crew members was really because they weren't doing well in school or they were having life problems. The work ethic's not really our problem. You know, most of our enterprises get started six thirty seven in the morning, and it's hard, hard work. And then after that, you go to school, and then you have your three hours on top of that. It's a major commitment. The thirty three is not usually the issue. The six and the three is where we lose a lot. And so we we really have we've built a team at Coalfield that's uniquely designed to be a problem solving team in the Appalachian context. Mm-hmm. And how does that team look like now? Like what's the executive team? Mm-hmm. So we have a, we have a horizontal org chart, which is important to us. We feel like just cause someone, they might have more decision-making authority and you need that for clarity. It doesn't really make them more important uh, or higher up. It just, it, it, it's just a chain of command point of clarity. So horizontal org chart, uh, we have an executive team of four of us. And then uh, branching out from that are our responsibility, really according to the to the core capabilities. Um, so we have Marilyn Wren, who's our chief development officer, and uh, she has a development team, which does the six and the three, uh, professional development trainings that we put on, and then a lot of our grant writing. Um and then we have uh, our enterprises uh, are, are in Ryan Stoner's chain of command as chief operating officer. Each enterprise has a director who's really tasked with being the entrepreneur responsible for the well-being of that enterprise. So take Refresh Appalachia, that's Adam Hudson, um, you know, grew up on the farm, studied agriculture in college, and now he's really responsible not just for growing refresh Appalachia, but really shaping a whole new market of sustainable agriculture. Perfect. So the business structure of it, like does each president set their own objectives? Do y'all have a, me- a monthly meeting like with everybody? How does that work? We do. So for, um, for, so, so some of the businesses we own, uh, we don't, or some of the interests businesses we own a stake in it's less than 50%. So for those, it's more of like an arm's length. For the businesses that we own more than 50% of a stake in, Coalfield is very, very involved with like the day-to-day problem solving of that enterprise. So um, we we work according to the traction model. It's a business planning book uh, called Traction by a guy named Gino. I uh, can't remember right off. but uh, Very popular. Book. Very popular Good book. book. And it's, yeah. it's a very structured approach. And it's not rocket science, but it... It's really about having the discipline just to stick to the approach. So we have quarterly rock meetings and the rock is an analogy for, you know, if you have a jar and, you know, you want to put like two or three big rocks in it and then there's sand and pebbles. If you don't put the rocks in first and you put, just fill it with sand and pebbles, then it fills in and you don't have room for the rocks. Whereas if you put the big rocks in first, the sand of the pebbles will usually fit in around it. Does that make sense? Yeah, so more important. So Coalfield, we really sit down with each enterprise and agree on what those are going to be so that, you know, we're not telling each enterprise what to do day in and day out, but we are guiding the the strategies and the big and the big decisions that have the big financial consequences. We're really guiding those until the point, like with our solar enterprise, once it really does become independent of Coalfield, then we kind of let go of that a lot more. Are those rocks monthly or weekly? Quarterly. Quarterly? Yep. And then there's a, a weekly. So each enterprise is having a weekly meeting where they are 
checking in on progress towards achieving those rocks. And Coalfield, we're not in all of those weekly meetings at the enterprise level, but they do, um, you know, we check the notes from those meetings just to see if there are any red flags and to make sure everything's on track. Perfect. And the traction model, who would you recommend that to? Like someone who has a two to three person business compared to someone who has 20 plus employees, who's it really for? Any of the above. And it's just a good planning tool. And uh, when did you start implementing that? We've been using traction for three years now. Have you seen like a big difference in the way? Yeah, it's a, what it, it's a, really, it's a, ultimately it's a communication tool so that, uh, Everybody is working on the right things, which is harder to achieve than what you might think, especially as you grow. Right. So each president, like how involved are you in choosing those? I know you mentioned you're involved on the daily operations, like in choosing objectives. I imagine you all have a certain amount of uh, uh, opinion on setting the rocks or do they kind of just take it and run and ultimately yeah Coalfield ultimately has to sign off on what the rocks are for the businesses that we own more than 50% of uh and then you know I think really my main job as CEO is finding those entrepreneurs and supporting them to be better entrepreneurs and tough question maybe but is there a certain position you notice like after you added not necessarily the person, but the position that really helped things streamline or, you know, is it a team process or how, how would you say? It's a, it's a team process for sure. I think here recently our CFO has been huge. Um, So in my mind, initially, I really wanted each of those directors or presidents to really handle their own finances for their own enterprise but our finances get pretty complicated pretty quickly because you have a mixture of grants and sales and then, you know, various loans. And then we are making our own sales <laughs> mm-hmm. and then you've all the tax implications of that. And so here recently adding a CFO has been huge. And then adding uh, Kelly on personal development to give that the focus it needs. Right. So before the CFO, did you kind of have each, a social enterprise kind of manage and report to you? And then did that yeah. kind of get... Yeah, it just got hairy. Got, yeah, <laughs> so, so just one overseer of the financial yeah. plan is is definitely recommended. Uh, all right, great. So this new brand, talk about the branding process and kind of, which that's where we kind of came into the situation, but how important is branding when it comes to a nonprofit? Like, you know, a lot of people think, well, you know, I mean, I can just apply for this grant and if I write pretty good, I mean, that's really all that matters. But like really branding and putting yourself out there and telling your story is one of the most important important aspects. Very important. Um, Very important. And, and because the, it's really about trust and building trust with your various stakeholders and, um, and then excitement, you know, that, uh, I mean, I, because with nonprofits, I think a lot of, I think kind of the brand of the nonprofit sector sometimes is not the best. I mean, I, I think because there are all these nonprofits and yet, you know, we still have poverty, we still have unemployment, we still have all these problems. Uh, and then, and some nonprofits, you know, there's been scandals with what's been done with money and whatnot. And so I, I think we've really tried to establish a brand, one that, is built on trust, but two that 
gets people excited that here's something different, actually. This is not just the same old, same old, but this is a really thoughtful, different approach that's still grounded in who we are and where we are, but it's it's doing things in new and different ways. So, you know, and I didn't, I did not understand the importance of brand early on. I mean, I remember like, even in, so we started in 2010, even like 2012, 2013, just like using Microsoft smart art. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know? Yep. Yeah. <laughs> uh, which is, was not cutting it. Um, <laughs> but I, what I do like about our brand though, is it, it is genuine you know, and like the whole team has had a lot of input on shaping it so that it, it has organically evolved out of the work that we do in the places that we serve rather than just being handed down to us from a consultant in some faraway place. Right. And I, and that's what I love about it, too, is it gives you a chance to change that old fashioned stereotype of Appalachia, especially in rural areas in general. Like if, if you put your story out there and maybe someone learns something they didn't know about and hear a positive story that may inspire them to do something on their own. So, and I think actually, I mean, I mean, our one organization is not going to solve the economic crisis in Southern West Virginia. And so as we, as we move forward, I feel like some of the most, some of the greatest value we offer is our story and giving hope with tangible examples and visuals and stories of what a new economy can look like and that it could be possible. That may actually be the most valuable thing we're doing. And so therefore our brand and our storytelling and our communications become very critical to our success. And having those polished braining materials, uh, but gritty, uh, you know, and not has, too polished, no, not too polished. <laughs> um, uh, how has that, has that opened up opportunities that you may have not have? Like has someone watched maybe some video you guys have made or anything like that? Has it, we get so many, it grabs people, our, our look, our feel, uh, certainly the videos that you've done on the website, something about who we are and what we do is just really compelling the people in the most sometimes in very unexpected settings. Uh, and what's really good too is like if we'll have a, uh, we've had national media, you know, over, if you combine all the different national media stories that we've been a part of, like the number of clicks on those stories online is over 15 million. And, but what's really good, so if someone just gets interested and then they like Google Coalfield Development, it's really important that we have good materials to like take that interest and turn it into support, whether that's buying a product or donating or volunteering. And, and I think actually our, our, our website and social media do that particularly well. And, and to clarify, like bottom line, it's about the mission, but you know, having, having someone come in and, and brand the organization, uh, helps to create that perfect storm and to explain, you just want your story portrayed properly and that you run a risk of it not. And it's really just about scaling the mission, sure. you know? So, uh, yeah, it doesn't mean, I mean, obviously we're going to be all about our crew members and our entrepreneurs and our projects, but our, the, the, the messaging communications really just scales the impact of, of all that. Perfect. So uh, what would you say to somebody who's... <laughs> and by the way, I mean, all of this takes money. Right. So... <laughs> well, that's that's the thing that comes into like, you know, oh, that's a good... That's I'm glad you brought that up. What would you suggest to somebody that has no idea 
how to compose a grant or where to even go to apply for one. Like someone who's out there maybe in high school or, you know, in college kind of in between what they want to do with their life, but they have a really good idea. How do they put that into fruition with no knowledge of the process? I mean, I think it's pretty rare that it would happen overnight, right? But it is possible. And I think my story, our story is, is evidence of that. One thing I would say is, I mean, I think the traditional advice would be to start small. And I, I would not totally agree with that. I mean, I think I would say start with a really a big, strong vision, but then be willing to be patient in how long it takes the vision to come about. You see kind of like the distinction I'm making there? So have a really big vision don't, and don't sell out on that but then also understand that it's going to take day by day chipping away to, to achieve that vision. And we're talking vision and now an integrator got to bring that up. So a visionary and an integrator, which is traction model. Yep. Very much so type stuff. So how important is that integrator? Like explain what an integrator is. Yep. So with the, with the traction model, you have the visionary who's really generating the ideas and, and that's me. And then you, you have to balance that out with an integrator who's really uh, integrating the day-to-day realities into that vision. Right. And for us, that's our COO, that's Ryan. Mm-hmm. The pragmatic person. How does that relationship work? I mean, is it always smooth sailing or is there, you know, I'm sure. No, because a lot of times it's intention. You know, a lot of times a, a visionary gets all excited about a new idea, whereas the rest of the team feels like that's just, you know, n- not a good, <laughs> that's right. just going to add to the stress. Like you got the person in the background adding the numbers. Right. Like, I don't know. Right, right, right. You know? Yeah, of course that's going to create some tension. Right. But I mean, at the same time, if you don't take chances. Right. And I do think, I think the visionary role can be misunderstood sometimes because to be a visionary that actually achieves anything, like you can't just be up in the clouds all the time. So I think, a vision is, it's not something you just make up. A vision is really something that you have, but you can see a way to it. And so therefore, like a vision that's worth anything should be viable. And a visionary who's worth anything should be able to lay out a path of how we're going to get there. Right. Is it possible to be a hybrid? A little bit of both? I think it, I think it, it's, it is possible. I think it's probably impossible to be perfectly in balance. Right. But... I think to be good at either, you've got to have some percentage that connects with the other. Mm-hmm. Which I can relate to that because, you know, me, me and Corey started, I had all these plans and he's more of an integrator, but he's a visionary too, but in the creative world of mm-hmm. like what things... See, now that's a good point. Yeah. Like sometimes like you're who's the visionary in one setting might be more the integrator in another setting. And vice versa. Yeah, you can be a visionary in the business aspect, like, oh, I know who I could pitch this to. I know where I could, you know, and and that's why we mesh together so well. Uh, so last question. I mean, when is it over for you? What's the ultimate goal years down the road, however many years? I mean, hope, uh, hopefully Coalfield continues well on before, you know, when we're not here. But what's yeah. the goal? I mean, I would love for Coalfield to not be needed. Ideally, we have a diversified economy where lots of different entrepreneurs from lots of different backgrounds with many varied interests can thrive and flourish. Um, and I think that's possible. 
I don't know if that's possible in my lifetime, but I think it is possible. I think that a, a, a lot of what we're doing here could be applicable in other extraction-based communities all over the world. And that's what I'd like to see live on past me is that not necessarily Coalfield development expands to be this global entity, but that the things that we're doing that are unique and that are really working can be applied in other extraction-based communities like a gold mine in Africa, you know, or a, a uranium mine on a Navajo reservation. Because the socioeconomic similarities from one extraction community to another are striking. Uh, the effect that it has culturally, environmentally, socially, economically, politically, to be totally dependent on one extractive industry, uh, it's, it's strikingly similar. And I would actually love to see connections get made of the different cultures in the different extraction-based communities. I think that could be very uplifting and empowering and world-changing. Right. All right. Anything else? Uh, just, I think the world, your business, oh, love working with you. You're too kind, sir. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. I, you know, we just value you guys. And that's one testament too. like, you guys took a chance on us. I was just a guy with a video camera that made a couple good videos and you liked the work and y'all took a chance on us telling the story of this organization and took a chance on us building your websites. And, and we just appreciate You've it. done it very, we get so many compliments. Thank you. Yeah, we're just proud to be here, and we just appreciate y'all. All right, thanks. Brandon Dennison and the whole Coalfield Development team is so special to not only me, but JJM Multimedia, one of the first that took a chance on us, and we just appreciate the work that they're doing to retrain the workforce and hope to get to be involved in those efforts for a long time. To check out Coalfield Development, visit coalfield-development.org like them on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and shoot them a note. Let them know what you think about the work they're doing in the coal fields. Appalachian Startup is a bi-weekly podcast, so be sure to check back for more stories of entrepreneurship. Like us on Facebook and Instagram, and support the show by grabbing a sticker from our online store at AppalachianStartup.com. Review our podcast on Apple Podcasts and SoundCloud as well. Those reviews will help the show be found. We are on Patreon. You can support the show there and allow us to showcase more businesses in Appalachia. Stay tuned for more stories of underdogs on the rise.